index strategy is market capitalization weighted. And market cap is the number of shares outstanding times the price of the share. So what people are willing to pay for one share. So when you, the product of that is market cap. So it basically computes to company size. And it's one of the most cheap and efficient, easy ways to create an index. So market cap indices are have been the traditional way to put together very large diversification at a low cost for a particular strategy. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Julie Kane. Julie is the CEO and co-founder of Democracy Investments. It's a registered investment advisory firm focused on promoting democracy and influencing capital flows in financial markets. The firm's Democracy Investments International Index reweights the traditional international equity index towards democracies and away from authoritarian regimes using the Economist's Democracy Index. Now, Julie began her career as a U.S. naval aviator recently served as the captain of the California State Guard. Thank you. She has a 20-plus year background in the financial services that includes product innovations at Wells Fargo, Charles Schwab, Advisor Services, SCI Investments, and Autodesk Ventures. I'm actually really excited to have her on today. It's going to be a little different from our normal conversation because I have someone here who is actively manufacturing financial products for popular consumption. Now, I have to say this right up front. I don't know all of our listeners. I don't know your financial situation. So this isn't a recommendation for anyone to go out and buy this. This is another step in the educational process. And I hope you get a ton out of it. I know I'm going to learn something today as well. Julie, thanks for coming on the Mindful Money Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. First off, where do you call home and where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Orinda, California, just over the hill from you. (laughs) All right. And did you grow up here in the Bay Area? No, I actually grew up outside of DC in Alexandria, Virginia. My dad retired from the Navy and consulted to the Pentagon. So I was lucky that I didn't have to move around after he retired and went to UVA, did ROTC there. And then I was actually recruited out of the Navy by SEI. And that brought me to the Bay Area. And I've been in the Bay Area ever since. And my fund sits on SEI's platform. So I've sort of gone full circle. Oh, cool. So I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. What did you learn about money and entrepreneurship growing up? So my dad grew up during the Great Depression, and I could not leave the table if there was a little morsel left on my plate. (laughs) And that pretty much trickled through, like being savvy, not being wasteful, being careful. And then I had the good fortune to have Navy Federal Credit Union as my first bank, which is an outstanding credit union. And I learned the importance of, you know, I saved pretty much everything I earned in my early jobs. And uh, yeah, I think I was fortunate to be brought up in a time where you had to work hard and therefore you were careful with your strategies, not taking money for granted. And I'm doing the best to pass that on to my own children. (laughs) Do you have any secrets in that regard? Do you know how to, (laughs) I have have children Um, trying to pass it on to too. (laughs) Well, I think working and having them, you know, as early as possible, pay for their own pleasures, pay for their own phone, pay for their own entertainment is 
is good because then they would they really feel the value if it's like well i earned that oops i just lost all that you know (laughs) maybe i shouldn't have gotten doordash (laughs) three days in a row (laughs) daughter had a phone and it was in a pocket of her pants and she took it to six flags and it flew out of her pocket while on a roller coaster at six flags and we had to regret to inform her that was on her to replace. <laughs> she actually called Six Flags and they found it. So <laughs> after wow. three days later, it, sur- it survived. It was totally incredible. Lucky her, right? Anyway. Oh, so can you- so fortunate. Totally. Can you name like, I don't know, an experience growing up? Like, when were you first aware that money was something you had to think about? Was it a purchase when you were, you know, younger than 10? Was it a job when you were 13? You know, what was that first time when you started thinking about money? Well, my dad offered to pay for college so I wouldn't join the Navy. So that was probably the first time I had to really think about it. It was my way of rebelling was to join the military so I could be independent and not expect anything from my parents. So that was the first time I sat down and said, okay, what do I need to live outside of my scholarship and where will it come from? And how I make this work. And then, you know, that was pretty straightforward. I'm trying to think if there was a, I guess, making the decision to have kids, you know, what that does to your financial planning was probably the next big, big accounting exercise that I did. And then more recently starting my own business, that's probably yeah. been the most challenging and being an entrepreneur has really taught me a lot about a savvy financial planning. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into that a little bit before we get into that though. Can you just give us a little bit? I did a rough thumbnail sketch. Could you give us a little bit of history of your time in financial services specifically? Sure. Yeah. And thank you for that great introduction, by the way. As I said, after serving in the Navy, I was recruited out by SEI and there I worked directly for the CEO. I was in the first class of junior military officers and that's still a program they have today. And actually my Two of my relationship managers are former Navy, so I like to tell them they have their job because I didn't screw it up (laughs) way back when. (laughs) So SEI was a great for, I mean, it's always hard transitioning out, but I was so fortunate. I worked for some amazing leaders there. And at the end of one of the projects, they said, okay, everybody on this team gets to pick any office and any job. I picked San Francisco mutual fund sales and marketing. And as I said, I've been in the Bay Area ever since. Then I went back to business school, UCLA did a management consulting for a bit, then corporate venture capital at Autodesk, which is where I met our chief investment officer, actually. And then I was recruited into finan- back into financial services from there, and I've been in it ever since. So I started at Wells Fargo's private bank, helping them build out product and client segmentation strategies. And then I worked at Charles Schwab, helping the RIAs who custody at Schwab with their transition planning and human capital strategies. Mm-hmm. Then I got recruited back to Wells Fargo, built out their first competitive intelligence platform, which was super fun for their whole wealth brokerage and retirement line of business. And I ended up, I like to say I'm the Forrest Gump of Wells Fargo. I worked in every line of business at Wells Fargo, except for wholesale. I was there when they were the darling and I was there as they were cleaning up the mess. So I've seen every side of financial services and, you know, I was drawn to it. So way back when I was deciding to get out of the Navy, I went to a, it was like a speed dating for junior military officers. And I met with multiple industries, but I was drawn to financial services because I felt like money, the economy, that's where you have impact. And I wanted, I've always been mission driven and I wanted to choose a path where I felt 
motivated in the same way. How can I have, you know, contribute to the world, making the world a better place? And I thought financial services, not, most people tell us, they're like, really? Like, why wouldn't have picked that into our industry for that? But, you know, coming from the outside in, it really does, I mean, to me, it feels like one of the most noble fields you could be in because of the huge impact money has on everybody's lives. So hats off to you and what you do for your clients every day and making all those important life choices easier. Yeah, I get the same sort of a weird, you know, people go, you went from studying comparative religion and Buddhism to finance, please explain, right? And I have the same sense, like you can, people have so little knowledge and so little understanding about how this system works. And you just open up any paper today and there's so much misunderstanding and so much Mm -hmm. angst and so much pain around finance that it's, you can have a huge impact. The problem is it also attracts people that are purely profit motivated. And I think that combo is, it's tough for the universe to swallow financial services. So I actually want today to be a little bit more about education. And I'm excited to have these conversations because I don't think most people understand some of the basics, you know, what's an index and why is an index not an indexed product? What's the difference? So can you give us, just take a very basic like S&P 500 in broad mm-hmm. brush strokes, how does a company, Vanguard, iShare, somebody take an index and turn it into an investable product? Sure. So your traditional index strategy is market capitalization weighted. And market cap is the number of shares outstanding times the price of the share. So what people are willing to pay for one share. So when you, the product of that is market cap. So it basically computes to company size. And it's one of the most cheap and efficient, easy ways to create an index. So market cap indices are have been the traditional way to put together very large diversification at a low cost for a particular strategy. Can you just touch on the idea, what do you mean by waiting? What is this idea of waiting? Well, to decide how much to allocate to each company to do it in a neutral systematic way, that you're this, the traditional way is to just use this very simple formula. So the market has defined what the share price is and the shares outstanding, but that product is the total market cap. And it's a very neutral way to rank companies. Another way you could do it is by their dividends or their revenue, or you could do equal weighting to every company. And then you'd have as much Apple as you do, you know, a smaller tech company. So, um, but- so weighting is, you just said it like Apple versus a small company. It's the amount when you buy a portfolio of a certain index, it's the amount of that portfolio that is dedicated to Apple or Exxon or another company or whatever it might be. So that weighting is the size in the, okay. It's Um, basically the company size that when you boil it all down at at a very simple level, the market cap just looks at company size. It doesn't take any other factor into account. And you listed a couple, and I think most indices are built that way. And like you said, you can do equal weighted, And there's other ways that people have, you mentioned like dividend weighting and there's like price to book and there's all kinds of other ways to do it. Have people been looking at other ways to do it? I mean, is there's a ton of research on this, right? Is there some that work and some that don't work? Is that something that you have any sense of given what you're doing? Well, the more actively you manage a strategy, the more you're going to have higher fees and higher transaction costs. So that has to be weighed with any, you know, deviating from the traditional market cap approach. Interestingly, there's, I've been watching all the ESG discussions and, and the ratings around ESG and how different strategies are being scored. 
And there are, I think, some more creative ways to bring in ways to look at the new world we're entering. And that's you know part of the motivation behind our strategy. Our strategy is very much, we are proponents of passive investing. So we tried to create a strategy that is as passive as possible while incorporating a new lens to account for, in our case, changing geopolitics and concern for democracy. So where did that idea come from? Like, how did you decide, oh, there's all these different ways that people are tilting or factor-based ways, people, you know, weighting something, price to book. How did you say, you know what, let's do weightings based on democracy. How did that come up? Well, my partners and I were very concerned, and this was during COVID. We were watching the all-world ex-US indices getting pressure to allocate more and more to authoritarian states, especially China, over the years. And I mean, trillions are following these indices. And I've been in touch with my friends who are still serving and hearing their perspective of the world. That was, you know, alarming for me because I was hearing things that weren't in the press. I feel like they're more in the press now than they were five, three years ago. But indices have not been held accountable for, I mean, there are still international securities that are sanctioned in these indices. And for the emerging markets on the all-world XUS, two of the top 15 holdings are in securities that contribute to the tech for a surveillance state. It's literally used for surveillance for a community that they're, that they're monitoring. So I like to say, how is that ESG? Because right. it's also in the top 15 of the large international ESG funds. I'm not sure most investors are aware when you have, you know, 2,800 securities in your portfolio, do you really have you, are you digging in to see, well, where are you mostly allocated? And I feel like that's our concern. And that's why we wanted to come up with a new passive strategy that would undo that. And so what we do is we hold every country accountable to their democracy score as defined by the economist magazine. So it's, again, it's simple and transparent and systematic. We're just merging an all world XUS index, the same basket of stocks that are in the market cap with the economist democracy index. And that results in a very neutral tilt towards democracies such as Norway, Taiwan, the UK, Taiwan, and then we downweight China by 73%, their score just dropped this year, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the UAE, for example. So this way you can get your international exposure. It's still a passive systematic index product. So it's cheap for us to manage and you you know, huge diversification, 2,800 stocks, large cap, mid cap, and mostly developed markets, but you're no longer fueling the growth of authoritarian states. So if our fund gets to be as big as a Vanguard fund, every country, ideally, every country will be incented to improve their democracy score to get more capital. So how does, and this is something I don't think that when we're investing internationally, I don't think we're thinking about how, when we invest internationally, we are funding a specific state. So when I buy my, you know, my EM portfolio and it just gets dispersed across, how does that get to, you know, China or a state that I may not want to support? So the indices decide which companies to be included. And again, it's back to that same rule we just talked about share price times number of shares outstanding. So they're just looking at company market cap. China has been an emerging, is classified as an emerging market, but 
And I want to say there are 30 to 40% in most of those emerging market strategies. In the All World XUS, they're at about 10%, and we downweight it to 3%. But again, when you're looking at your giant international fund, is anyone going in and seeing the country allocations? And then diving in further, well, which securities am I, am I allocated to? It's, we're trying to raise awareness for that. And again, provide just a simple, easy strategy to replace the current All World XUS strategies out there. So... I think most Americans, like I haven't spoken to most Americans, but a lot of the people I've spoken to, they just have like a plug. I have to have a certain percentage international and I'll buy an active fund or a passive fund. I don't really think about it. I just have to have something international. They may get more granular with their domestic stuff, but sure. for their international is just like, I need to put something in there. I'm just going to buy a fund or buy an ETF or something like that. Yeah. How do you break in and try to express, hey, there's a way that you can do this that may be better for the world? Yeah, well, it's conversations like this and getting in front of people who are worried. Most Americans are worried about democracy. Most people are viewing authoritarians as maybe not our friends. And we should be, you know, maybe we should stop sending so much of our investments to support their companies and their economies. And if we can put economic pressure, then they'll be incented to improve. Now, if you just divest then you're no longer incentivizing. That's why we don't, that's why we chose to tilt and not screen out any country. Because what they get better when you decide to let them back in. And there's actually a lot of interesting research out there around divesting doesn't really work over the long term because they're no longer incented to improve. Hmm. And in the case of an oil and gas company, they, it could just go private and then they're even more off the books of being influential. Also, in the case of oil and gas, interestingly, only 27% of oil and gas companies are on listable exchanges. The rest are with private institutions and state-owned enterprises. So in our case, we're shifting our oil and gas allocation out of Saudi Arabia and into Norway and Canada, who are more focused on renewables and environmentalism, et cetera. So you know, we tend to, our ESG score is good compared to the other all world XUS indices because democracies tend to be more focused on ESG as well. I wonder if that's, well, we don't, I'm not going to go down that, that rabbit hole right now. Yeah. So can you make the philosophical case and I can make it like, I'm, that's why I'm having you here because I'm excited about this, but make the philosophical case for why a democracy might outperform an authoritarian state in, you know, long-term in terms of their economy and then the companies that act, that are acting inside that economy? Sure. Well, the war in Ukraine really brought everything to the forefront. And there is hard research out there that authoritarians have higher growth volatility and they have more frequent short-term crises. That's documented. And we look, we saw with the education sector rules can change overnight and suddenly you have to be a nonprofit. That wouldn't happen in a democracy. And democracies, however, are they enforce rule of law and property rights. There's a more efficient and transparent use of capital. They have higher per capita GDP. They have better innovation. So our hypothesis is that democracies will outperform authoritarians over the long run, and the companies will try to do their business in countries that support just to support the you know the transparent use of capital and you know. If you own it, you know you're not going to suddenly have to be a nonprofit tomorrow. Suddenly you have to, you know, break up all your entities because 
there's a common prosperity rule that no one company can be too powerful, for example. So we're seeing it play out more and more. And what's interesting is when we launched this during COVID, we were saying, well, you're not going to give anything up. You can expect the same returns at least and support democracy. Well, since we've launched, we've seen, you know, Jack Ma disappeared and then he reappeared. I like to say, what would happen if Elon Musk just disappeared <laughs> to us and then reappeared? What would that do to our stock market? So we've seen, you know, world events and we've seen and we've seen relative outperformance as well since launch. So our story has proven out better than expected. And But we're worried about the trends in democracy. The Economist is, does such a great job every year. They have 60 different indicators that go into the democracy score. And so it's quite robust. And they've been doing it since 2006. So we're honored to be partnering with them. And we think bringing their methodology into the world of passive international investing could be a very powerful way to both raise visibility and give investors you know, the opportunity to fuel the growth of democracies in a very neutral and transparent way. Can you just point to like one or two of those, the things that are the 60 items that are within the economist's democracy score? Sure, like, what absolutely. Are they looking at? What are they looking at? Yeah, well, they're all on my website. They roll up into themes such as electoral process, function of government, political participation, civil liberties, number of women in government, free media, free internet. Yeah, interestingly, the US, we stayed the same in our score, but our fund is ex-US, by the way, for just the reasons you said before. Most people you know, want to more carefully manage their domestic holdings. So we're your answer for just ex-US international. But I still always get asked, where's the US? <laughs> we are a flawed democracy. We stayed the same in our ranking because we went up in political participation because more people voted, but we went down in functioning of government. So functioning of government is what's holding our score back right now. I was just going to ask, like, how are we doing? Because I can't imagine that we're doing great. <laughs> but I guess more people participating is a good thing, right? Yeah. Well, and you know, it, so my chief economist did some really interesting research. And when you look at population, the U.S. is actually doing pretty well. I mean, we're one of the largest democracies. You know, look who's ahead of us in population, China, India, Nigeria is coming up, Brazil. So for the size of our population, we're really, we're not doing that bad because the larger, the more cultures you have, more languages you have, the harder it is to have. So, you know, Norway, it's easy for Norway and Sweden. They've got, you know, one language, one culture, and it's much easier to have a tight democracy when you have less subcultures to manage. Yeah. They do speak more languages than we do though. Like <laughs> that's... This is true. <laughs> They do for sure. It's interesting that they don't maybe need to. Maybe that's why they're more democratic. Maybe that's their answer. Everyone should learn two lang two or three languages, and that would solve three, our problems. Four, five. Yeah. I'm going to see a buddy this summer in Switzerland, and I think he knows four or five languages, and that not even the same alphabets. Like the languages are completely different. It's a totally different way to look at the world. I think. So you mentioned the the white paper, like the Economist Democracy Index white paper. Is that something we can link to in the show notes? I'd like to see if we can't put that in Absolutely. there somewhere. Is that on your website? Yeah. We'll link to that. It is That's on great. my website. I can get you that PDF. That'd be great. Yeah, it's a good news. So you mentioned ESG a little bit ago, and we've had a ton of criticism about ESG, which I personally think is ridiculous, but Rather than go into that argument, do you think democracy investments, are you guys in ESG? Do you fit in ESG? And after that, what are your thoughts about that criticism? 
You know, we're technically not ESG. However, some people say, oh, you are, you're kind of the S for social and you're kind of the G for governance. I like to say we're a whole new category of pact investing. We're the big G for government. And, you know, two thirds of the world's solar panels are made by forced labor. So you have all these environmental strategies that are not considering human rights violations. So I like to say, if you really want to be full ESG, you should start with democracy and do your tilt for democracy first, and then do your ESG if you want to be sure you're not you know, supporting solar panels and wind farms made by forced labor. So people who like ESG like our strategy, and then people who are skeptical of ESG also like our strategy because we're so transparent and easy to measure. We're, you know, we're walking our talk. There's no greenwashing. You know, sadly, there are a lot of ESG strategies that I think the criticism has come about because they're exploited as a marketing tool right. and they're not transparent. And then for some people, no more recently, they view ESG means you're sacrificing returns. So I don't think there's one writing. I think ESG is not going anywhere. There's a $30 trillion wealth transfer coming for millennials and they are definitely going to vote with their wallets. Yep. <laughs> and then I have two Gen Z. I can see they're even more upset than millennials. So I don't think ESG is going away, but as it should, it's under more scrutiny and it's time for the regulators to get involved. And they are, <laughs> they have a lot of work to do. I think it's so interesting, the different pension funds that have, that are like New York City uh, is being sued for having ESG strategies, West Virginia, Louisiana, and Texas all are restricting contracts with anyone who supports ESG, who has ESG in their strategy. So they're kicking out BlackRock and then main forced divestment of fossil fuels. I mean, it's just, we're all over the map as a country right now. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Europe, they're much more aligned and there's more regulation. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how this unfolds. <laughs> this just popped into my head, given what you said about the big G. I think, you know, if no one's used this already, I'm gonna be the first one to say this. We need to have an acronym, EGGS, EGS, so environmental, government, and social. All right. So you I heard like it, it here first. You heard it here first. It's Thank the you. Thank you. Use or, that. Or use we can see where's the D in ESG? There's my other one. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Maybe there's a D well. in ESG. You mentioned, I mean, I know that the, much of ESG is worried about the E, right? And you mentioned earlier something that sort of st struck me that I don't think anybody pays any attention to. Because we divest from fossil fuels so that we sell out, I think you said 23, 27%? 27%. 27%. So we would limit our portfolios by removing oil from the portfolios, but that might affect publicly traded companies, but that doesn't affect state enterprises or you know nationalized oil enterprises at all, does it? No, it will encourage those 27% to go private. And then what leverage do we have? And Actually, that, that, that goes right back to why you don't screen. It's also right. why you, you reduce or the weight. Tilt. You hold it, but reduce the weight. We huh. tilt, exactly. That's exactly yeah. why we do that. And on the whole ESG issue, interestingly, in the equity markets, the more impactful way to affect the E is in the debt market and to lobby your bank not to finance coal projects. That will have more impact over the long term than divesting of those 27% of the or, or to tilt. So have hold more BP and less Exxon. So you're incentivizing Exxon to be more like BP and focus on renewables. That's the other strategy that could have more impact. Right, right. So I want to go back to 
you said earlier that the big challenge in the personal financial world for you has been the launching of a business. So without talking about the specifics of the business itself, what has been the struggle? What has been hard for you in launching the business? Well, I think while the timing was good for us in that we have unexpected huge outperformance for an index fund, and I'm really grateful for that. We came in at a time when the market started to go south <laughs> and people that would have normally, you know, tried out a new fund, maybe were like, no, I'm going to watch it for a while. And maybe I don't want to get international at all for a while. So we've had some headwinds just with our timing in terms of the market cycles. That and because we are a whole new category, I think it takes a while for people to get their head around us. It's been a great few months, though. I'm hopeful that we're going to see a lot of momentum here coming, you know, before year end. And so the big challenge is just getting the word out because I, we've built a scrappy model to compete with the big brands. And so to do that, you know, I'm not going to take, I don't have a huge marketing budget. So it's meetings with advisors like you. And I've been talking to all the platforms as well. They're all aware of us and they're just waiting for our A1 to get to a point where we can start the due diligence process. But, and then I guess my other interest is that as now that I'm in it, I see the monopoly that the big brands have. And so I really like finding the smaller advisors who maybe aren't a fan of some of the big brands and they're like, well, you're walking your talk and that's something new and creative. And that's a story I can take to my clients where, you know, maybe you've got you know, a husband and wife on each side of the aisle, how do you bring them together? And this is a strategy that most people can get behind no matter what your politics. And it's more of, you know, a case for affirming democracy internationally than it is arguing about what we have going on at home. So that's been the positive part. Other challenges, I guess that's about it. Just getting the word out and having the patience to, you know, grow slower than I would have liked. <laughs> And waiting, you know, waiting for that moment where we can really get on the platforms and then have a bigger marketing, you know, have a marketing budget where we can get the word out in a professional way. And Every small business starts somewhere. So it's, I've never even remotely considered the concept of creating a product for the market. Like I've always just used products that are already out there. That's not true. I actually thought about doing a, like a, a slow food product at one point, like building an ETF around the oh. slow food movement. And I had oh, somebody who's going to help me do it. But I, it's just not my space. So I'm always, I always love chatting with people that, you know, have put the boots on and tried to do it. And I wish you the best of luck. Is there anything that you're working on now that you can tell us about? Is there any other rollouts that's, that are coming? Yeah. Oh, we have a huge product roadmap that I can't disclose, but it will all be leveraging our license of the Economist Democracy Index. And I'm also hoping to expand in Europe very soon. We have, interestingly, a lot of Nordics. They're very worried about democracy and they'd like to see a strategy launched in Norway and Sweden as well. I have a lot of Swedish American fans here in the Bay Area, actually. And uh, yeah, we're toying with some other, actually it's where market demand takes us. If people want us to do an ESG strategy, we can do it. And we can, I think we can do one that would be very high impact. That would blend the democracy index and ESG? Yeah, there's a way we could do that in the future if there's client demand for it. So I have to, I need to, I need people to come tell me they want that product and I will create it. But yeah, basically, I mean, we have exclusive rights to use the Economist Democracy Index. So there are a lot of very creative ways we can leverage it in more equity strategies, fixed income strategies. I'm curious because I know that there's this, the last, I think, couple of years, there's been this push towards, what do you call it? Individual indexing where people mm -hmm. basically create their own index. So they, and the, Something that's frustrating to me as an advisor is I want to express a certain portfolio 
And I have all of these tools that have their own individual unique expressions, but I don't have the ability to build a portfolio with these four different expressions. Like I like value. I like small cap. I love the concept of a democracy index. It'd be, and I don't know how to develop this, but how do I go to a place where I can sort of pick off a menu and that menu creates a portfolio that I can implement for clients. That's just, that has all of the things that I like that I think are important. That doesn't, you know, I can take a little bit of this. I can have a little democracy. I could have a little ESG. I could have a little, you know, women on the board. Do a lot of little things, but nothing that's sort of overarching across all the different strategies, which is, I think that's coming. And I think that may have started with this idea of individual indexing. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And yeah. wow, that would how I mean, you'll have so many flavors to pick from. <laughs> I know, but it's, and then like you were talking about the small advisor that can tell the story to their clients. Then it becomes, this is my story as an advisor. This is what I do. And you can find people that agree with you and just want you to do it. And I think that's totally custom built for whatever they care about. Yeah. We have this idea of customized medicine. Why not customized, totally customized portfolios? I think that's, yeah, I think it's coming. Like, I think it's probably five years away and you'll be a, yeah. a, an integral part of that. I think a yeah. couple deeply personal questions. One. What was the last thing you changed your mind about? I love the slight sigh that comes after that question. <laughs> I have to think about that. What is the last thing I changed my mind about? Well, I recently broke my foot and I was invited to go on a 24 mile, very steep hike in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in August with a really, with a, I know the organizer, but I'm excited to meet the group. Something I really wanted to do. And but I thought oh, I'd be irresponsible. Can't do it. Can't do it. Well, I just changed my mind. I'm doing it. <laughs> and I've started physical therapy and I have an interval training plan and I'm going to be there and maybe the last one in, but that's okay. I'll be in Jackson Hole on August 5th. You're doing the hard one. Doing it. We talked last week and you were going the short route last time we talked. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you did just change your mind about that one. That's awesome. I forgot you I told you. <laughs> Yeah, you did. You told me you weren't going to do it. You did. You told me you were not going to. So now I have, we have proof of mind change. That's, I think, the first opportunity we've had here. Yeah, clearly it was bothering me and I told everybody about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, That's we'll funny. see how it goes. I hope you don't injure yourself further. Thank you. Can you name a place that you visited that's had, and I'm wondering this because mainly democracy, lots of international locations. Can you name some place you visited that's, that really had an impact on you? And what was that impact? Well, my first duty station was Subic Bay in the Philippines, and they were worried about a coup. So I was had all kinds of really interesting missions to, we were showing our presence in a very interesting way. And yeah, seeing what it's like to live in a third world country, I've never been more grateful to live in a democracy. I mean, just the smell of the sewage and watching the children barely clothed. And I got to take medical supplies to victims of Mount Pinatubo, really showing my age. <laughs> Everyone knows when that was. So that probably had the biggest impact on, you know, just living and breathing in another society like that and being on the front line of, you know, helping the villagers. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely had the most impact. And then I've been fortunate to travel through Europe on vacation and see, you know, beautiful democracies, beautiful countries. And so definitely some of the, that those experiences are part of the inspiration behind our fund and our strategy. Great. 
tell us or tell our listeners how they can connect with you and find out about Democracy Investments International Index. Oh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Julie Kane, C-A-N-E. And there's more information on our website, which is www.democracyinvestments.com. And you can also look us up. Our ticker symbol is DMCY. Just think, think remember the song, YMCA, it's DMCY. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love, I really enjoy feedback, especially from folks that are not in the financial world, because that the creativity that comes there has been super helpful. So please reach out. My chief economist is actually in Oakland and he has a lot of really interesting research and we are often invited to do webinars. So if there's a investment club or any kind of club that wants to talk about what's going on geopolitically in the world, we're happy to take that on and share fresh research. Awesome. Julie, thanks very much for coming on. I enjoyed it. I learned something and I hope everyone else did as well. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.